used a lot of different ways uh, today. And I like what Paul said in Colossians 1 and verse 6 as he described the, uh, the Christians there at, at Colossae and their reception of the gospel. He said uh, <clears throat> that they knew the grace of God in truth. And I think it's important that we keep our eyes on that simple idea of knowing the grace of God in truth. And really, you know, people look at California as, uh, you know, an evil place that they wish would just fall into the ocean or whatever. Uh, But, you know, the reason California is what it is is because they haven't been hearing the message of God's grace in truth. And there's a great need for that. And I'm so thankful the Lord is giving us an opportunity to go and preach that very message. And this morning, I would, I would like to do that, that same thing. I would like to preach to you a little bit about God's grace. And you might be sitting there saying, well, I'm a Bible believer. I'm saved. I, I know about grace, right? We're saved by grace. Um, but there is a real danger of not understanding God's grace completely. And so I hope that this message will be a help to you this morning. Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse number 11. Uh, if you don't mind, let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God's word if you're able this morning. And uh, I'm just going to read verses 11 through 15. <clears throat> and I encourage you to follow along and see that I'm not making these things up, right? So beginning at verse number 11, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity uh, that we do have today, Lord, to dig into your word. And I do pray that you'd guide and direct my words and thoughts, help me to know uh, what I need to uh, emphasize and uh, what maybe uh, we can gloss over and, and uh, for sake of time. And, and Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to hearts through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can have a seat. <clears throat> um, I, I've uh, <clears throat> grown fond of saying uh, that I really believe there has never been a, a better time to be alive. I, I really believe that. And uh, I know sometimes we can, uh, uh, we can talk about the, the good old days and think that things were better at certain times in history. And uh, we might look back even at the time of Christ and say, boy, wouldn't it be exciting to have been around in those days. Um, but, you know, in a real sense, there's never been a better time to be alive. Uh, I mean, we live in the age of grace. Uh, ever since the time of Christ, we've been, when it, we've, we've been in a day where God is at work. Uh, starting churches, working through churches, saving souls, transforming lives. And it's an exciting time to be alive as, a, as the world around us seems to be so much against the things of God. It really just gives God a greater opportunity to shine forth his light. And uh, we live in exciting, exciting days. Uh, days where Jesus may come back at any moment, uh, but also days where God is at work. Uh, the gospel is being preached all around the world. Uh, if you uh, want to know God, you can do as simple as go down to the Dollar Tree and buy a Bible for $1.25. And uh, tracts are being printed by the millions. Uh, it is an awesome time to be alive. And it's all because it is that day of grace. That day where God is invading this world and working in lives. But what is grace? 
Uh, you know, the word grace can be defined many different ways, as we alluded to already. And if you look it up in Webster's 1828 Dictionary, which is a great uh, tool for studying your King James Bible, uh, you'll find that there's 20 different definitions given by Webster. And, and uh, so we'll just have to spend a few minutes on each one. Uh, just kidding. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to give you the first one, uh, which is uh, favor, goodwill, kindness, or a disposition to oblige another. And if we just take that, that idea, I think it gives us a, a good foundation for understanding the word grace. Because really God's grace is not so much uh, a thing that he supplies or, or a commodity that, that is exchanged or something like that. But really God's grace is, is his, his attitude towards us. His approach to us. That he reaches out to us, that he favors us, if you're a child of God, uh, that he uh, deals with us with goodwill and kindness, a, a disposition to oblige. He wants to bless us. And, and so it's important for us to understand that um, as, we, as we try to wrap our minds around this awesome concept of God's grace. But there is a real danger today of misunderstanding grace. Uh, I, I think... Um, you know, you, you just listen to maybe a, a, a preacher on TV or, you know, meet, meet Christians and maybe go to uh, a different kind of church um, and just listening to them talk about the way they live their lives and the way they make their decisions. And, and uh, you, you get the impression that maybe they think a little differently, right? And, uh, and a lot of it boils down to a misunderstanding of God's grace. As a matter of fact, we are warned of that in the scripture in Jude 4. Uh, we're told that there are certain men crept in unawares who are before of old ordained to this condemnation. So here's these men that have crept into churches. And yet God says that they are ordained to condemnation and they're ungodly men. And then he tells us what they do. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. In other words, taking the concept of God's grace... And twisting it around to mean that we can just live however we want. We can live in unbridled lust and excess and, and uh, even uh, outrageous things and shameless things. Uh, some people honestly believe that God's grace means that. I read about a, a Bible teacher that was um, helping a young man learn the German language in preparation to, uh, to uh, do some schooling in Germany. And this particular young man uh, happened to be from Africa, where in his country um, it was considered normal uh, for young men to live very immoral lifestyles, but the ladies were expected to be faithful to their husbands. And, and, um, and this Bible teacher, as he uh, got to know this young man a little better, he, he told about how he had grown up going to a missionary's school and, and uh, learning Bible truth. And, and finally, the Bible teacher confronted him. And he said, you know, you've been living a very immoral lifestyle. He, he saw some of the things that he was involved in, even though he was a, a married man. He was uh, committing very wicked sin. And, and, um, and the Bible teacher confronted him about it. And this is what the young man had to say. He said, ah, but God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. And he used the simple thought of God's grace and God's goodness to twist it around and excuse his immoral lifestyle. Now, if, if we take an honest stock of popular Christianity today, 
They, they may not want to excuse somebody living in, in adultery, uh, but they do use that same type of reasoning to excuse all kinds of other uh, ungodly behavior. But you know, even we as independent Bible-believing Baptists can get confused about God's grace. Uh, we, we know that we're saved by grace, right? We know that. We've got that settled. And hopefully, personally, you know that you've been saved by God's grace. But then we can become legalistic in our thinking. Uh, not, the, not the false label of legalism that people throw at us because we try to do what's right and we take the word of God seriously. But we can become legalistic in our thinking, thinking that somehow we, we've got to earn God's favor or, or, or thinking that, that we need to live a certain way because of the outward pressure from our pastor or the expectations of our fellow church members instead of out of, out of a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to just help us with a, a quick review concerning God's grace because we need to understand God's grace in truth. So let's get back to our text here in Titus chapter 3, I'm sorry, Titus 2, verse number 10. Um, I'm sorry, verse 11, I'll get it right one of these days. And for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And uh, certainly it is an awesome thing that God has revealed his grace. He revealed his grace through the fact that he, the eternal omniscient God who lives in, outside of time and eternity, reached out to man, giving us his word, and then eventually sending his own son to live amongst men, reveal the truth about who God is, and then offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sin, to make reconciliation to God possible. All of that was a revelation of God's grace. God's grace has appeared. And God's grace, he says, has appeared to all men. As we read that Jesus in John 1 lights, is a light that lighteth every man. God is still reaching out to everybody today, giving them an opportunity to come to know his saving grace. But it's all of grace. The plan of salvation was all of grace. Look at Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, God's grace can be seen in every facet of salvation. God giving us his word, God sending his son, Jesus dying on the cross, rising again, all of that demonstrates God's grace. And then when you and I personally receive that gift of salvation, think about what has to happen for a soul to be saved. Right? The gospel has to be preached. Well, isn't that God's grace? I mean, when you go and preach the gospel to somebody, is that not God's grace working through you to reach out to them? But it doesn't stop there, does it? But God uses his word. The spirit begins to work and convince them to open their eyes to understand that, that they are sinners and, and that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And then, of course, we're faced with a decision. Will we say yes to the Lord and continue to cooperate with his grace and receive that gift of salvation by repentance and faith? Or will we reject it? But if we receive it, 
what does God do? Well, he does all the saving, doesn't he? We don't do any of it. We don't pay for one of our sins. We don't do one thing to to, to change our, our hearts or our lives. God does it all. It's all of grace. All we do is receive it as that gift that is offered to us. And so God's grace can be seen in every facet of salvation. He draws the lost to him. And when they trust him, he changes their heart. He changes their standing to be justified in the sight of God. What an awesome word. Here in verse 7, we're justified by his grace. I love the simple definition of just just as if I'd never sinned. Because uh, that's really how God treats us. That's how God looks at us. is no longer being evil and contrary to him. He looks at us as his children who, who all of our past, though we can remember the evil that we've done, he looks at it as all being just and accepts us just like his own son, Jesus. What wonderful, wonderful grace. And so this morning... If you're here and you have no idea what I'm talking about, if you're here and you've never come to that point in your life where you understood that your sin, whether it was lying, stealing, uh, committing adultery, or even just committing adultery in our hearts, because Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust, you've committed adultery, whatever it might be, we've got to come to that point where we realize our sin separates us from God. And the only way to be reconciled is through what Jesus did on the cross. And if we'll turn to him and trust him, if you'll turn to him and trust him, he will save you today. And in his eyes, all that sin will be gone. And you'll be one of his children. And you'll find out what it means to be born again and live that new life in Christ. But if you're saved this morning... You know, sometimes it's important for us to remind ourselves that I am accepted in the beloved. Ephesians chapter 1. What rich truth that it's all about God's grace. But notice, secondly, not only does God do all the saving and we need to be reached by God's grace. That's our first point. But also, once we've been reached by God's grace and we know that we're saved... We need to be attached by God's grace. Um, in Ephesians chapter 4, and I think for sake of time, we won't turn there. But, but in Ephesians chapter 4, I encourage you to read it. Right about verse uh, 6 or 7. I, I, I always forget which verse it is. But uh, it talks about how he's given grace to every one of us that are believers. And then the rest of the chapter, he goes on to paint a wonderful picture about what, what the church is supposed to be like and what we as individuals are supposed to be growing to become in our Christian life and, and demonstrates a little bit about what God's grace is trying to accomplish in us. Right. And right about verse 15 or 16 or so, he talks about how we are one body as believers and that God has attached us He's joined us together as a body, and each, each one of us, every one of us, supplies something to the life of the body. Here's what I want you to see, is that when, when God saves a soul, he doesn't, he doesn't you know, want to leave them out like some spiritual Rambo by themselves, right? He wants to attach them to a body. So that we can supply something to the life of the body. So that we can work together to accomplish the the, the great work of the Great Commission. And so if you've been saved, 
understand God wants to attach you to the body of Christ. And the way he does that is through baptism and church membership. Because that's what the church is. The local church is the body of Christ. And so if you've never taken that step of obedience and been baptized and become a member of the church here, understand you are frustrating and resisting what God's grace is trying to accomplish. Because God's grace reaches down to save us, but then he attaches us to a body. And so if we're going to experience all that God's grace has for us this morning... We need to, first of all, be reached by God's grace in the sense of being saved, but then we also need to be attached to a local body, to a church. Notice, thirdly, let's get back to our text here in Titus. Chapter 2, verse number 11, we read that the the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Okay? But then we, the end of the verse is a comma. Right? I know it's summertime. We don't want to go back to English class, but just stick with me for a minute. All right, commas do not end sentences, right? We, we remember that, all right? Sentences finish with periods or question marks, you know, exclamation points. All right, so, so the sentence continues. So verse number 12 starts with a, a, a verbal here, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, if we took verse number 12 all by itself and put it on a poster, we might assume that it's talking about your pastor, right? Because he's always teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. But what is the Bible saying? What's the subject of the, of the sentence? Well, we've got to go back to verse number 11. For the grace of God is the subject of the sentence, is it not? The grace of God appears in verse 11, and then that same subject, that same grace, is teaching us in verse number 12, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. You see, God's grace <clears throat> saves us. And what a wonderful grace it is to do just that. But our salvation and God's work of grace does not stop the day we trust Christ as our Savior. He leads us to be baptized, be attached to a church, and then he teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. We need to be taught by God's grace. I think we all probably know, uh, at least if you've been a Christian long, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and then not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Precious, precious promise to share the gospel with folks. But then verse 10 goes on and says, For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. In other words, when you get saved, you get plugged into God's eternal plan. And what God's eternal plan is, is that you would become like Jesus Christ. That you would have certain good works that God has already planned out for you to do. And we become his workmanship. The word, of that, the word there for workmanship is, is the idea of, uh, uh, of like a work of art, uh, of, a, uh, of a masterpiece. You and I become God's masterpiece as he begins to shape and mold and transform our lives. And that is very much God's grace as, as well as when, we, when, when he saved us to begin with. Right. Romans chapter 5 and verse 21 makes a 
startling statement if we'll pause and listen to it. He says that as sin hath reigned unto death. Now we know that, right? Before we were saved, sin ruled our lives, right? We were slaves to it. That as sin hath reigned unto death. Then he says, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, we don't usually think of God's grace as being a king sitting on a throne telling us what to do, do we? <clears throat> but that's how it's described there. He says that God's grace reigns in our lives to produce righteousness. No wonder in the next chapter, in verses 1 and 2, Romans 6, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Why does he use such strong language? Because he wants us to understand that if you think that being saved by grace means you can go on and live in sin, you don't understand grace. And we need to know the grace of God in truth this morning. And so God's grace teaches us to deny certain things, teaches us to deny ungodliness. You might be sitting there saying, well, I'm, I'm a Christian. Of course I'm not ungodly. I've got God in my life. <clears throat> but you know, even we as Christians can live ungodly lives. Yeah. We can <clears throat> indulge sin that we know displeases God. We can neglect duties that we know God wants us to perform. Uh, we can go through our lives much like the world does without giving much thought to what does God want? You know, how is he leading me? What does he want for my life? Uh, or, or, or without uh, uh, looking to him for help, that's ungodliness. And God's grace will teach us to deny that ungodliness. And the worldly lusts, those improper desires that are common to the lost, that desire maybe to, to, to get rich or to, or, or to uh, be famous or, uh, or some sensual, ungodly pleasure or, or, or maybe even revenge. Those worldly lusts, God's grace will teach us to deny it and will teach us then to live the life that God intends for us. You see, we have to be taught by God's grace. Because no matter how smart you are or how sensitive your conscience may be, our idea of right and wrong, our idea of what's best, oftentimes falls far short of what God's thinking is. And so we've got to be taught by his grace. That's why it's so important for us to get into the Bible and, and not just read the words, not just have our eyes physically glance at the words or even our mind register what they are, but we must look to God to teach us by his grace. And he will show us day by day things that we need to deny and things that we need to do to live. Because his grace will teach us to live soberly righteously, doing what's right towards others, godly, honoring the Lord with our life. And he'll teach us to do it in this present world. All right, it's a wonderful hope that we have, according to 1 John 3, that one day we will be with him, with Jesus, and we'll be like him, right? We, we won't have sin anymore. We won't be tempted anymore. We won't have all the consequences anymore. And what a wonderful hope that is. Amen. But here, God wants us to understand that his grace is reaching out to us to give us a taste of that life here in this world. And if we let God's grace teach us, he will teach us to deny ungodliness 
and worldly lusts and live soberly, righteously, and godly. But lastly, there's one more important lesson we need to learn about God's grace. Not only do we need to be reached and attached and taught, but we also need to be enabled by God's grace. You see, God is so good. <clears throat> I mean, think about, think about parenting for a minute. All right, if you've got a toddler that, uh, you know, for the first time, you're going to tell them to go clean the room. Um, <clears throat> if that's all you do is tell them to do it, you better have really low expectations, right? <clears throat> because uh, they aren't going to know how to do it, right? You're going to have to go and teach them this is how you make your bed. This is what you do with your toys. This is what you do with your books or your clothes or whatever. <clears throat> we, we've got to walk them through it and teach them. And you know, God is, is <clears throat> pictured as, as a father in the scripture, is he not? And, and, and just like a good father will teach their children, our father takes us where we're, from where we're at and he'll lead, lead us one step at a time. That's one thing that was helpful to me um, in uh, understanding the, the role and the uh, process of discipleship. You know, when, when somebody comes into the church, they, they, might, they might be coming to the first time and getting saved, or they might be coming from a background of maybe they were saved a long time ago, got out of church, now they're coming back, uh, or, or maybe they just moved into the area, and, and so they're a little more advanced in their Christian life or whatever. But wherever we are, okay, as a pastor... It's our responsibility to then help you to go from where you're at to the next step, right? And that's the way God works, too. He takes us from where we're at. He doesn't expect somebody that got saved yesterday uh, to live the same kind of life that your pastor lives exactly. Now, that might be the goal. That should be the direction, you know, that we want to be godly. We want to we become all that we can to be like Christ and all those things. But it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It takes time. And it takes steps of obedience and decisions and changes along the way. It's a process. And, and God's grace walks us through that process. And so God doesn't just teach us what you ought to be. He doesn't just set a high standard for us. But he then teaches us to do it. He, he, he trains us. He helps us to become that. Now, in our lives sometimes, <clears throat> we can uh, recognize a goal that we want to accomplish. Maybe it's uh, a certain amount of success in a ministry. You know, we want to see our class grow or we want to uh, lead a certain number of people to Christ. Or, or it might be a, a character type of thing where, where we want to become something that we respect in somebody else. And so we, we, we work hard at it. We, uh, we struggle. We, we manipulate. Uh, we do everything we can to accomplish that goal in our strength and with our wisdom. And then one of two things happens. Either we fail and get discouraged, uh, which is perhaps what most of the time happens when we try to work that way in our Christian life. Or perhaps, which is even worse, we succeed because then we have reason to become proud and we begin to look down at somebody else and say, why can't they be a good Christian like me? But neither one of these is God's plan for the Christian life. You see, the Christian life must be lived by grace. We must learn that we are so weak that we must constantly go to him 
even in our brokenness and in our failure and allow him to put us back together and allow him to work through us. Turn with me, if you would, to a passage of scripture that's become very precious to me. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Of course, there's many, many precious passages of scripture concerning God's grace. And uh, it'd be a fruitful study to take time and just really dig into each one and meditate in them. But hopefully we can at least whet your appetite a little bit this morning. But here in Hebrews 4 and verse 16... Paul is uh, developing um, the reasons why these uh, people of Jewish background that have trusted in Christ should continue to follow Christ, not go back to Judaism. And, of course, his whole argument revolves around Jesus being the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And, And one of the great pictures that comes out in Hebrews is the picture of Jesus as our great high priest. And here in verse number 16, he says, let us therefore, because we have this awesome high priest, Jesus Christ, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. So first of all, let me just pause here for a second. God is inviting us as his people to come boldly, to come openly, to just enter into his presence. You see, sometimes we, we, we feel like you know, well, I've failed, I've sinned, I've messed up this week, I've neglected the Lord, I can't pray. But God doesn't look at it that way. God looks at it this way, he says, boy, you need to pray. <laughs> and he says, come boldly. You know, if you're discouraged, hey, don't hide that from God. He already knows anyway. Tell him you're discouraged. Tell him you're struggling. Tell him you're having a hard time. That's what it means to come boldly. It means you come to God openly, not trying to hide things, not putting on a show, just being yourself. And then he says what will happen is, first of all, we'll obtain mercy. And boy, we need it, don't we? Because we do fail. And 1 John 1.9 is put into the Bible because we need that verse, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We will never become sinlessly perfect in this life. And so we need that mercy. And he says when we come to the throne of grace, you don't got to buy it. You don't got to beg for it. You don't got to do a certain amount of penance to receive it, right? We just obtain it. It's right there waiting for us. If we're willing to confess, if we're willing to let go of that sin and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, He has all the mercy we could ever need. But that's not even the best part. Notice the word and. Because we not only will obtain mercy, but we'll also find grace. And here's where it becomes precious. Because it's grace to help in time of need. I like to put it this way, that grace is real help just in time. It's real help just in time. You say, what what is my need that I need help? It doesn't matter. You have a need. He has grace to help with that need. You're struggling with sin. He's got grace to help with that need. You uh, facing a trial or difficulty, he's got grace to help with that need. Not sure what to do about a problem child or a difficulty in your marriage, he's got grace to help in your time of need. 
And we can come boldly to that throne of grace. And he says, you'll find it. It's right there waiting for us. And so when we struggle in our Christian life, and when we fail in our Christian life, oftentimes it's because we've neglected that throne of grace. And we don't got to take hours of formal prayer to find that throne of grace either. Right? Right when you're facing that temptation, that's the time you need grace, then go get it. Go get the grace. Let me just give you a couple of examples of what God's grace can do. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, by whom we have access by faith into this grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, God's grace can enable us to stand when we're facing temptation or we're facing pressure to compromise. God's grace can enable us to stand. God's grace can enable us to rejoice. That's why we're commanded to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Because it's not us, it's, it's him, it's his grace. What about this, 2 Corinthians 12, 9? Paul said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's what God told Paul after Paul begged him to take away that thorn in the flesh. Now put yourself in Paul's shoes for a minute. I don't know what it was, if it was a physical affliction or an obnoxious person or what, some sort of difficulty. Paul said, you know what, I'd be able to serve you better, Lord, if you take this away. And God said, you got it all wrong. You'll be able to serve me better if you have that problem. If you have that weakness, because my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So that Paul responded this way at the end of verse 9, he said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we prefer to glory in our strengths, right? I can bench press X amount of pounds. I can run, you know. Whatever it might be, <clears throat> I'm smart or whatever, you know. We glory in our strengths. Paul said, I glory in my weaknesses. I glory when things get too tough for me. When the trials come into my life, that's where I glory. Because then, then God's power, God's grace can be evidenced in my life. And so if you're enduring trials, what you need this morning is you need God's grace. He needs God's grace to carry you through and help you be a sweet testimony through it, whatever it is. We don't have time to go there, but in 2 Corinthians 8, we find that God's grace enabled the churches of Macedonia to give more than they thought they were able to give. It's God's grace that can enable us to give. If we're struggling with that tithe question or something like that, we don't need a raise. What we need is God's grace. And we'll find that we can live better on 90% than we can live on the 100%. I've never met anybody that regretted trusting God with their money and tithing. Let me just give you one more. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. Paul said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. He wanted us to understand very clearly that he became all that he became in his Christian life because of God's grace. And he did everything he did in the Christian life because of God's grace to the point where he says, it's not really me. It's not really me. It's not I, 
but the grace of God which was with me. As you look around and meet other Christians, you might think, man, I wish I could be the godly testimony that he is, or I wish I could do all the things he does in ministry, or, or, or have an influence over the lost like they do, or whatever it might be. Understand what you need is not some, not some salesmanship course or something like that. What you need is God's grace. Because it's God's grace that will help us to grow spiritually. It's God's grace that will work through us to impact others. And it's God's grace that we ultimately need for every area of our lives. And so we spent uh, three years in Oceanside, right next to Camp Pendleton, uh, Marine Corps base. And uh, <clears throat> we, we, we literally got tiled, tired of the acronyms. You know, military guys have acronyms for everything. But, uh, but it did rub off on me. So I do want to finish by asking you a question with the acronym RATE. How do you rate this morning? Concerning God's grace. First of all, have you been reached by God's grace? Do you know that you're saved? Do you know that you have eternal life? Do you know that you've been justified by the grace of God and that he has begun to change you? Then secondly, have you been attached? Has God connected you to a local church? Have you been taught or are you being taught by God's word? Are you being taught by his grace to become more and more like Jesus every day? And lastly, have you learned to be enabled by God's grace? Have you learned just how much you need his help for every area of our lives? How do you rate this morning?